Well, for six or seven weeks now, we've been using the Bible to find out what it should look like to be the family of God. And today I'm going to wrap it all up by finishing a message I started last week on the purity in the family of God or what it looks like to fight sin together as the family of God. Because when you look to the Bible to find out what God is thinking about the family of God, you'll see that it has two top priorities ahead of everything else, unity and purity. He's most concerned about this discipline of unity that we'll all have to be thinking about and working towards together, and the discipline of purity that we'll all have to be thinking about and working towards together, or we won't have either one. And the reason this is so important to God, and should be to us, is lack of of unity. If you've lived any life and known anything about the church or what unbelievers are saying, right? Lack of unity and lack of purity are two of the biggest objections from unbelievers as to why they don't think they even need to consider Jesus Christ in the church. And to some degree, can you not can you not understand why they think that way? I can. Because they look at the church and they say if Jesus can't even create peace in his own family, You say you all love Jesus and you call yourself a Christian. And if he can't give you power, not perfection, but power to say no to sin, why should I listen to this message you keep going on and on about? So turn with me again to Matthew chapter 18, where we're going to keep walking through what does God's word tell us? What are the guidelines as to how a family of God can work on purity together or fighting sin together. Matthew chapter 18, today, I started last week in verse 1. I wish I could, but for the sake of time, I'm going to start in verse 10, because I'm going to read to the end. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, take heed, this is Jesus speaking, that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's not talking about a little child physically standing there in the crowd. Now he's talking about his believers, his followers, his children, spiritual children, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? See, what he's doing is he's telling a story that's going to set up what he wants us to do for each other. He wants you to see his heart is not to let any of his little ones, his children, stray off. One of the ways he helps them stay on the path is us helping each other. That's why in verse 15 he's going to say, so if your brother or sister sins, go to them. He cares. He cares and does not want them to stray off. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that do not go astray. Even so, see here, verse 14, it's not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. 
And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, now he's about to tell a parable. And if you've been in our church family any length of time, you've heard me say parables were not a sweet little nighttime story. Story time with Uncle Jesus. No, Jesus would go into a parable whenever he knew what I just said to you is so radically different than what you would choose to do. That this is a stomach punch to get your attention. So when he just said, not seven times, but 70 times seven, our sinful flesh says, what? Now it's time for a parable. That's what he's doing. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Look at me. One, this isn't a monetary. This is money. This is not, oh, I have the talent to play piano. A talent was money, and one talent was the equivalent of one year's salary. So 10,000 talents is 10,000 years worth of salaries. If you crunch the numbers, I have a friend who did, it's $9.6 billion. Okay? $9.6 billion is what the servant owes. But... Verse 25, as he was not able to pay, you think? Right. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. And who's the master? Jesus. Oh, praise God for that phrase. He's moved with compassion towards us. Released him and forgave him the debt. But, oh folks, the next verse should not begin with the word but. It should begin with, and so that servant went out. But, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now look at me again. Let me help you here. Sometimes I'll hear teachers saying, it's like a dollar or ten dollars. Wrong. One denarius was one day's wage. So a hundred denarii, that's plural, is about three months' wages. If you crunch the northern Kentucky Cincinnati numbers, that's about $15,000. Oh, big enough that it hurts. I would miss that. I love you, but if you owe me that, we're going to say, how can we work out a payment plan? Do you know how to give plasma? What's, what are things worth? You, you know Craigslist, eBay, get going, sell stuff. I need that 15000 back. It's big enough that letting it go and saying, oh, all right, it's going to hurt. It might change how I have to live now. It impacted me. He owed 100 denarii, and he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And he would say it. 
not. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt. How big? $9.6 billion. I forgave you all that debt. Not because you deserved it. Not because you earned it. Because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Oh, here's the key phrase all through the Bible on why we're supposed to forgive. Just as. Even as. Just as. You'll find it multiple places. Just as. Why should I forgive her? Why should I forgive him? You don't know what they. Just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each one of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, I don't have time to review everything we covered last week. But I put the notes in your outline so that you can see how we got to this point. If you weren't here last week, look over that and consider even going back and listening to it. Because this all fits together. All right? But where I want to jump in today and pick up with is walking you through this process of what does it look like to keep helping one another fight sin so that we'll have purity, not perfection, but purity in the family of God that looks different than the world who isn't thinking about this and, and really doesn't care. What would it look like, this issue of fighting sin together? And this issue is so important that the family of God was meant to fight sin together that you'll find this being addressed in multiple places in the Bible. Another one of those places, Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... So see, Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go. Well, now here's a passage that says it doesn't have to be their sin against you. You're just aware of they're caught in sin. If, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. But now he's going to give us some insight with what your heart needs to be as you do this. With a spirit of what? Gentleness. And then what else? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, just like Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, go to talk to them about their sin. Paul is saying you can't just ignore it. You can't say, oh, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's their business. That's them and God. You're supposed to go. You're supposed to love them enough to go. But when you go... Make sure you have the right spirit and heart as you go. In other words, he's telling us, number six, I was giving you some steps to what this looks like. Number six, go with gentleness and humility. In other words, don't be harsh and don't think it could never happen to you. I can't believe she, how could you? You call yourself a Christian 
If that's what's raging in your mind, please don't go. You're not ready to go. You say, oh, but I know exactly what to say and I've got Bible verses. Please don't go. It's not just do you know what to say. Do you have the right spirit and heart, which would be one that is gentle and humble enough to think that could be me. I have that same capacity to end up in these kind of places. I'm not better. See, when you go with gentleness and humility, here's what starts to happen. You lead out with questions rather than accusations. You lead, you're assuming the best. You lead out with questions rather than accusations because you're assuming the best about that other person and giving them an opportunity to explain. I may have misunderstood this. I may be perceiving this wrong. This should give, could be gossip or hearsay because that's what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love is not easily provoked and thinks no evil. You're not already thinking the worst about that person as you go. You don't go already provoked and thinking the worst about them because humility goes looking for answers. Pride goes ready to condemn and judge. Big difference. Big, big, big difference. And that's not the spirit of any of the passages that you see in the Bible about us helping each other with sin. You see, consider yourself lest you also be tempted captures the heart of humility. Because you're, you're allowing yourself, you're reminding yourself how much you have in common with that other person instead of how different you think you are. See, pride always wants to put distance between you and that other person and think, I'm so not like them. I'm in a different category altogether. That's pride. Humility allows you to remind yourself, I am a big sinner. Praise God I've never done that. Or maybe you have. It's amazing how we forget. Yes, you've done that too. But you remind yourself, there is not this huge difference between her and me and what is happening here. Pride loves to accentuate the differences and put distance between you and them, thinking I would never, ever do that. If you go thinking that, you'll come across harsh and bitter. And so it doesn't matter what your words will be. But, but I'm speaking truth. It doesn't matter what your words will be. The heart is missing. The gentleness and humility will be missing. Because what you're really doing is you're caricaturing that other person. Now here's what I mean by caricaturing. This is what cartoonists do for a living, right? They take something that's true. Whenever they sketch someone, right, they don't add features that are absolutely not true. They take what's already true, especially the negative things, and exaggerate it. For cartoon to do. Oh, I didn't want you to show it yet. Stop. Go back. Go back. Pretend that never happened. And they exaggerate it. Even when they like you, it's what they do. The reason I know is I'll never forget. For my 50th birthday, Vicki decided to surprise me. We have a cartoonist in our own church that does this for a living. And right here on this stage, she was surprising me with stuff and and Dan Letha had done this cartoon character for me. And I kid you not, when it was splashed on the big screen. See, none of you, you all thought, yeah, that's pretty much you, guy. When I saw it, I recoiled and I thought, oh, please tell me I don't look like that. Because what he had done was true, just exaggerated. Now, my neck's not that bad. 
I don't look that tired. I don't look that old. But pretty much, you would think, yeah, that's you. Everything about it's true, but exaggerated. Here's my point. Please take it away. <laughs> Here's my point. Pride causes you to exaggerate the sins of other people while you minimize, oh, listen, those very same sins in your own life. You do realize that psychologists and everybody that studies this find that the things you hate the most in other people and you jump on are the very things you are most guilty of. How do we not see that? And it's most like us. Oh. So in other words, we caricature other people and exaggerate and we do a glamour shot of us. We give it the best lighting and we Photoshop some of the ugliest edges and rough parts off of it so that, and here's what I mean by this. You're saying, what do you mean, Brad? When you lie, and the Holy Spirit brings it to your mind, convicts you, or someone points it out, you always find a way that it was reasonable and justifiable and appropriate, and it's the exception. It's the exception. When she lies, she is a liar, and the very mother of it. It characterizes her. She walks in deception and darkness, spewing forth nothing but lies. Now, when you do that, if that is what you are thinking about that other person, oh, trust me, when you go, you will be harsh. You will not be gentle. It will come across like you're taught. Because in other words, as you keep going down that path of caricaturing them, glamour shot you, you'll begin to despise them. See, look at verse 10 again. That's where I started. Make sure, take heed, watch out. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is a big danger. This could start happening in the family of God among believers. Beware that you do not despise another brother or sister. That Greek word for despise literally means to think down or look down on someone as being inferior and not worthy of consideration or care. Now, in verse 15, he's going to tell us to go and talk to each other. But he wants you to know before he ever gets there, you can't go already despising them. You can't go already assuming the worst. You can't go thinking evil. You can't go already provoked with the judge and jury done and you're there to declare judgment and condemnation. It will not go well. And listen to me. That's why some of your conversations that you're having with those closest to you aren't going well. Do you have someone that you have put in this category? If you were honest, you despise them. Trust me, I don't even have to know you well. That relationship isn't going well. And every time you all try to talk, it doesn't go well. Because the heart's not right. You cannot take the high ground and be thinking of them as inferior and you're superior. And their sin is gross. My sin is minimal. Don't despise. Gentleness, humility. But then with that in place, what should the content of what we say look like? Number seven, get the heart right. But then as you go, you go to persuade. You go to persuade, not to condemn. You see, let me say it to you this way. You are going to win them over, not tell them off. Oh, there's a big difference, and especially for Christians who still hold on to the Bible, and we do. We are that church family. We haven't let go of truth, 
But folks, it's speak the truth in love. And so it's not, I, I hear this a lot. There wasn't anything I said that wasn't true. Was anything I said not true? The problem is not what you said. It's how you said it. It was your tone. It was your attitude. It was the heart that you brought to that moment. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus or God call us to tell somebody off. I gave them a piece of my mind. Yeah, well, you didn't have any despair. You need that back. Nowhere does he say, back up the dump truck of truth. Ever. Ever. And, and as we practice this, it doesn't mean tell them everything that ever bothered you about them. Oh, no, no, no. Let it be one situation, one thing that you're... And it's not to tell them off. It's to win them over. You say, Brad, how do you know that? Because the phrase says, tell him his fault. That word in the Greek is a word that actually Paul uses a lot in the context and reference of evangelism. Evangelism. Because it's a word in the Greek that means to persuade and to win someone over. So he's saying, as we talk to each other about our sin, the goal is not to tell them off, but to win them over. To win them over. To persuade so that's the spirit. And then sometimes, as is sometimes the case, one conversation is not enough. And so then, that's what Jesus is doing in verse 16. Number eight, he says, don't give up easily. Don't give up easily and say, oh, well, I tried. They wouldn't listen. They didn't see it. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, I want you to consider what's going on also here at this step. There's multiple things, I think, going on here. Yes, you're taking one or two more who may be able to be involved to help bring reconciliation, to help the two of you work this out and see it. But I want you to also consider, also, it's an opportunity for you to hit pause in this whole process and say, how important is this? Is my case so serious? Is what's going on so serious that I need to draw in one or two more to weigh in on this? Or could I now just let it go and cover it with love? Now listen to me. Letting it go and covering it with love is your only other option. Not letting it go and getting bitter. So if you can't let it go, we talked about that last week, you move on. But it's a chance to say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to stop. Because now you're going to involve one or two others who you need to be convinced, this is such a big deal, I should reach out and involve one or two others in the process of reconciliation. Because notice in verse 17, these one or two others that you take with you are more than just witnesses. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy about witnesses. And when you think witness, you think two people that watch. But we know it's not that these one or two others just go and watch the two of you talk and try to work it out. These one or two others are talking, persuading, counseling. They're involved. They're talking. You say, Brad, how do you know? Well, look at verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, they're talking. They're persuading. They're counseling, trying to help you see what you might not be seeing. But now here's what I want you to see next in verse 17 and following. From this point forward, after you've involved one or two more, from this point forward is where most church families stop. 
and there's nothing further that's ever going to happen because it's hard. It's hard. You'd rather not do this. And if you're not careful, you could conclude, but it's not loving, it's not loving, it's not loving. But it's where Jesus goes next because he wants his family to have unity and purity. And he wants each one of us to keep growing and changing spiritually. And the heart of these next steps, please know, is not punitive but redemptive. It's not to shame or to shun someone. But it's that you love them enough that you'll risk being ill thought of to bring them back onto the path. Because we're family. And God intended for us to help each other continue in our pursuit of holiness. It's a sense of restoring a brother or sister back in right fellowship with God and the family of God. So here's how I'd say main point number three. Spiritual growth can stall without the love of a church family that refuses to ignore unrepentant sin. So here's where... Here's where the testimony in the community just goes off the rails and people say, well, I know so-and-so and they're committing adultery and they're saying this on the internet and they're doing this, that, and the other and they're a part of that church. He's a deacon in that church. She's a women's ministry leader in that church. That's where it's like, oh my, oh my. But churches say, well, you know, it is what it is. We're not gonna deal with that. And I know we live in one of the most lone ranger, individualistic John Wayne countries in the world so we, more than other people, other Christians in the world, can be very slow to realize that the Bible says our spiritual growth is a community project. Now, I know that can be tricky because you think, wait a minute, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, plus nothing. That happens between me and him. No one can do that for me. Exactly right. It's individual one at a time in salvation. But after you're saved, that's why he calls you into the family of God. It is a community project. We need each other to continue growing spiritually. Think about it. Verse 15 has one or two, one, two Christians talking to each other. Verse 16 has one or two more getting involved. And verse 17 says involve even more with tell it to the church. People. Which none of this can be happening unless you're a part of a church. And I would add, all the way back to the first message, really only the first few steps can happen unless you're a member of a church where you have said, yes, I'm here. I'm not just rolling in and out every few weeks and kind of going to multiple churches. This is my church family. I'm, I'm parking it here. I'm committed here. You help me. Because look at verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them... Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, we're hoping and desiring that our church family would actually be practicing this. So I think just like last week, it's important for me to help you understand what would this look like? How would these steps play out? What would it look like in a real church family like ours? And to help you, I want to answer a series of questions. So that's how I want to walk through this. Answer a series of questions that come to mind whenever you reach this step. Here's the first. What issues or sins are we talking about? What issues or sins are we talking about that would bring it to this point of tell it to the church? And if they won't hear, let them be like a heathen and tax. Please no. Please no. Take a deep breath. Jesus is not advocating some kind of police state where we're sniffing out sin and tossing out people left and right. People are being grabbed in the midst of the night from their homes. And this is not what he's at. We're all sinners 
We're all sinning to some degree. Nobody's going to be perfect. We're all moving forward, two steps forward, one step back. It's messy. Please know this is not like a police state where we're sniffing out sin. If there's any struggle in your life, you are going to be moved to one of these steps. This next step of telling it to the church is after someone is someone who after all these other steps and please know these steps happen over months sometimes years you can repeat the steps it's not he has no problem with you just hovering right here and just staying right here none of this happens in a hurry you don't rush to these stages but it's after these other steps have been practiced the person continues to resist and refuse to repent and persist in their sin regardless of the impact it's having on them and those around them and the church and the reputation of Jesus Christ to unbelievers in the community. In other words, these final steps are for persistent, unrepentant sin in someone who claims to be a believer. Not that they are a sinner. We're all sinners. But that they have refused to declare war on that particular sin in their life. And they've given into it, given over to it, and have said, it's just who I am. That's when we say, this, this is inconsistent. You can't. So if someone's struggling and fighting and working on it, you can struggle and fight and work on it for years and years and years. You're not going to get... It's when someone says, I hear you, I don't care what the Bible says. Not going to do it. We're saying, you don't have grounds for divorce. I don't care. This is what I'm going to do. Whatever the issue may be, whether, whether it's embezzling money, you name it. Christians have the capacity to commit, I hope you realize this, every sin. Right? The difference is you should be convicted by it. It should not be as easy for you. And if you're part of a church family, they should be moving in out of love to help you see this differently and to hold on to you and to lovingly bring you back, bring you back. I don't have time to uh, go into detail, but I've listed for you what some of the categories and sins might look like. You think about it, you can find all this in the Bible, so I tried to give you verses. Doctrinal heresy, that's right. Not just, we tend to think of sexual sins. Guess what, it's important that we have clear doctrinal truth in our church. So if someone, this is not on gray areas and differences that, I'm talking about a cardinal, if someone in our church begins to teach and preach, oh, Salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's works. Or it's by baptism. Baptism saves you. If they won't listen to us and they won't stop, and please know, we'll allow someone to hold to a different doctrine even, and we'll just say, please do not promote that in our church family. We disagree. If they keep pushing that, then they would be a candidate that we have to step in and say, you can't do this because there would just be confusion. We need to know what does the Bible say. So doctrinal heresy on a key fundamental doctrine. Divisiveness. You know, I've been pushing unity. So the Bible actually says, rebuke a divisive person twice and then remove them. And, and that would be on any issue. If there's something that you just won't let up on and you understand, that's not our view. That's not what we believe. You're, you know, we're happy to have you hold to that. But please don't. And you keep doing this and drawing others in and getting groups and talking and divisiveness undisciplined living the example there in first thessalonians is he talks about gossiping yes gossiping idleness consuming the church's resources apparently in thessalonica there was someone who just wouldn't get a job now don't hear me saying oh my goodness i'm unemployed i'm going to be disciplined out of the church 
No, someone that basically is a freeloader that just keeps trying to work the church system and will not, and the leaders are saying, now here's what you need to do, and they won't do it. That was happening in Thessalonica. Conflict between believers. That's what Jesus taught about in Matthew 18. If two believers in the same family can't work it out, and it begins to spill from their private encounters out into the church, then he tells us, whoa, you need to step in, and leaders have to take action. Sins of the flesh. Paul lists immorality. You know, living sexually sinful and claiming the name of Christ. And everybody knows, but they go to Grace Fellowship. I know they're a member at Grace Fellowship. Reviling or abusive speech. Drunkenness. Swindler. And this is happening more and more today. If there was somebody, in, it hadn't happened in our church, praise God. But someone who's moved into the church and it's, they're just using the church family as a means for business gain. Right? Some pyramid scheme and I'm, whatever's going on. If someone is abusing, someone is a swindler, it's not a complete list of external sins, but this is illustrating the kind of sins that bring shame to the name of Christ and damage the unity of the body and the reputation. But now here's a question. What does this step then of tell it to the church look like? So maybe you were thinking, wow, I don't remember tons of times where Brad or one of our leaders was telling us something bad about somebody. Here's why. Jesus doesn't give the details of what that would look like. And I think the reason is there are different church governments and structures. There are different sizes of church families. If it was a small church family where everybody knew everybody, then tell it to the church just might really be tell it to the whole church. Let everybody sitting there that calls Antioch Baptist Church know about it. But you got to keep the goal in mind. The goal is lovingly bringing them back because more people know them and are speaking to them. In a church family our size with two campuses and over 2,000 people coming on a weekend, about to have a third, it would not be a helpful or loving thing to announce to all of you the name of someone who is struggling with a sin that we're trying to help. You don't even know who they are. Most of you wouldn't know who they are, and you therefore would not be going to them to lovingly persuade them, so why should you know? That would be more like shaming them. We're going to name your name in front of everybody. For us in a church this size, tell it to the church means it goes to all the elders now who are shepherding and leading this church family to prayerfully consider and get involved. So sometimes when you wonder, what do the elders do? This is a lot of sometimes what we're doing out of love. We've got some of the messiest, hardest situations that we're praying about and working with to keep the process moving forward of restoration and repentance. Tell it to the church's elders now knowing this and thinking, what can we do? How would we get involved? What can we say with these people? What's the next step look like? So it's not that you tell everybody because that would be shameful and I don't think helpful. But now here's a question. If they won't hear the elders who are getting involved with their Bible saying, now here's what the scriptures say. I know you're struggling, bud. What does it mean when Jesus says, treat them like a heathen or a pagan and a tax collector? What would that look like? What does that mean? We believe it means remove them from church membership. Remove them from church membership because while everyone is welcome to attend our church family, we don't stand at the door and say, now, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Are you a Christian? Then you can't come in here. Sadly, there's churches that act that way. You've got to already have it together and be doing everything right or you're not welcome. We're not that church. We love it 
to people who are clueless or people who are far from Christ or people who actually believe something very different would come and sit in our worship services and hear God's word taught and see how we sing. Everyone is welcome to attend our Sunday worship services. But we reserve membership, and we believe the Bible teaches this. If you're a part of the body of Christ, you have to be a believer. What fellowship hath light with darkness? So we won't let anyone join or become a member, and sometimes it is awkward. So someone will come in, get real excited about what they're seeing, and they want to join. And as we sit down with them and listen to them, you realize they're not born again. They're not a Christian. So we want members to be those who are professing Christ and believe that they're a Christian and know Jesus Christ. So when it reaches this state with someone who claims to know Christ, but they say, I'm not going to listen to you, I will not do what God's word is saying, we remove them from membership. Loving thing to do. Because it's loving enough to say, you call yourself a Christian, you say that you are a Christ follower, but by the way you continue to live. So if someone was still living with their girlfriend and they're members of our church we would address that if we find out that someone is committing adultery whatever it is you say you're a christian but you're living in direct violation to god's word we're going to treat you like someone who doesn't know christ don't hear us saying we know they're not a christian he's saying at this point treat them like they're not they may be because the hope is that they would repent and be restored but remove them from membership it means that we wouldn't encourage them to take communion if you notice how when we do communion usually we'll always say now if you're here and you don't know christ we're so glad you're here but as this comes by don't take it because first corinthians 11 says this is for believers this is for those who know him we're celebrating what he's done in our life so we would remove them from membership discourage them from taking communion we wouldn't allow them to vote or help make decisions can you imagine people who don't know christ people who do know christ or even Christians who are in the midst of being caught up in a sin with a hard heart helping us make decisions. We're not going to allow you to vote and help us make decisions. And there would even be some places of service that would say, that is reserved. We really want people to be Christians who would serve in that area. Not all our places, but there's places we say, now you can't serve there. You certainly could not be a leader because we want you to think about, but we would welcome them. Even as we reach this step and remove them from membership, we would not stand at the door and bar them from attending. We would welcome them to attend services because we welcome unbelievers who we hope this person would keep hearing God's word taught in a way that they would be convicted to repent in that area. Because see, at first if you hear Jesus saying, treat them like a heathen and a tax collector, that can sound terrible until you stop and think, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. He loved them, even though he knew they were spiritually clueless. So we keep loving them, but we love them enough to say, your life right now, there's a discontinuity. You say you know Christ. You say you're a Christian. But this area is way out of line. So let me help you here, because I don't want you to get scared and think, oh, my goodness. And, and a lot of you, if you've been here a long time, then you know. I've been here 23 years as the lead pastor shepherd. I can count, not on two hands, folks, one hand, how many times it's reached this point. One hand. Where we remove someone from membership, and then what we do is in a church family business meeting, we name that name. Where most people there, guests are allowed to come, but most people that take the time to drag back out for a church family business meeting are members. And so we name that name there and say, please pray for them. If you, it's a smaller group. 
It's people who have already committed to be a part of this church family so that they would know we don't read the name in all three of our worship services or in both campuses on a Sunday because the goal is restoration, not shaming or shunning, but restoration in the family of God. But now here's the real question that some of you might be thinking right now. Why would I want to be a part of a church like this that would do that? I'm out. Where's the exit door? So much for membership. Every time grace for you gets talked about or connect, I ain't ain't connecting with that. Oh, let me help you. Why would I want to be a part of a church family like this that loves people enough to keep moving forward? Here's why. And here's why, please know, even as the lead pastor, I'm one of multiple elders, plurality of elders, and, and I could need this. I need this in my life. I, I have a community group that I'm a part of, not just because I lead one, because I need one. There's times I need them holding on to me. I, there's times I need the elders to love me enough to speak to me about something. There's times that other believers, you don't have to be an elder, speak to me about something. I need the family of God in my life, every single one of us, because here's what's going on. Because of chapters like Hebrews chapter 3, what the Bible teaches us about ourselves is why we should say, oh, I want a church family like that. Hebrews chapter 3 says this in verse 12 and 13. Brethren, beware. Who's he talking to, believers or unbelievers? Believers, beware. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another How often? Daily. While it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. A believer could get hard. A believer could be deceived, self-deceived. A believer can depart from the living God forever? No. But can a believer go off the rails for a season? Yeah, and one of the ways they're supposed to be brought back is they're a part of a group that just won't let them go. All of us have the capacity to deceive ourselves. Here's how I would say it. To go nuts spiritually. And to lose perspective. And so you need to have already, I don't mean just, make sure you have some buds and some girlfriends that you hang out with that would say some hard things to you. I actually think you need more than that. You need to have submitted yourself to a local church family in a sense saying to those Christians and those spiritual leaders, hold my feet to the fire. If I ever go crazy or act stupid or lose sight of perspective and I just love me enough to hold on to me and say, no, 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 no. And even do a hard thing for a season if it would result in my being restored. The reason you would want this is because you believe what the Bible says about just how sinful we still are and the capacity of our flesh deceiving ourselves. All by ourselves, I think what I think, and I see myself the way I see myself. We need others. But then quickly as we close, let me add this. Let me add this. Point number four. You got to understand, our church family will never do this well. There's two things that we have to be convinced of. Our church family will never do this well unless we're filled with the compassion of Jesus and convinced that he's with us. In this process. Now here's what's going on. And some of you, this may be the first time you've ever seen it. Those verses 18 to 20, you know, about binding and loosing and and two or three agreeing together. That is all about Jesus promising 
when you practice these steps, I'm right in the middle of it with you. I'm there. He, he's not giving them permission to decide who gets in and out of heaven. Don't, don't take that. He's, he is giving them authority and permission to decide who's in and out of the church. And the two or three who agree together, it's still talking about this process. That verse 20 gets quoted out of context all the time. That is not a name it and claim it verse. If you can find two other Christians that believe with you in Jesus' name and pray with you, it's done. That Lexus, that new job, that cancer being healed, that is not what verse 20 is talking about. Verse 20 is talking about as you move on into this process that's hard, and now two or three are involved, and you're doing a hard thing but a loving thing, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm supporting you. I'm in this because I care about the unity and the purity of my church family. He reminds us he's with us. But then Jesus calls us to be compassionate like he is because of our own sin debt that's been canceled. It's interesting that he goes right out of this on into the parable about the unforgiving servant. So that's why Jesus tells this parable about the, about the believer who's been forgiven an insurmountable debt. We're not bitter towards this person. We don't hate them. We keep loving them, knowing, oh, I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven. The heart of compassion has to be in this process. But that compassion doesn't cause you to stop short and say, there's what compassion would do. Just let it go. You love them enough, but your heart has to be in it. That word compassion, and the master was moved with compassion, is a word in the Greek that literally means your heart goes out to someone. In other words, your heart is on the line. A biblical church family is not a church family that just holds to truth. A biblical church family is a church family who's willing to put their heart on the line for others. To help them keep moving forward in this process of spiritual growth. Because listen, without the compassion of Jesus, and I think it's interesting if you want to know the emotions of Jesus, and I love studying Jesus. That's why I think there's four Gospels. That word for compassion is the number one word that's used to describe his emotions. It characterizes him more than anything else. Oh, yeah, he got angry, and he drove the money changers out of the temple. That is not the emotion that gets spoken of most about Jesus. It's this. His heart goes out to people. And I'm struck by it every time. He'll see a crowd, and he'll say, and he was moved with compassion. Even just this past week I was reading, and it's like it said he was tired. It said he was worn out by the crowds. And so he said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. But they all picked up on what was happening, and they ran around to the other side and were there when he got out of the boat. And he didn't say, oh, my word, give me a break. You're driving me crazy. It literally says, and when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. We don't reach a point where we're put out with people and we're ready to tell them off. His heart, his heart, his heart, his heart. Where we just won't quit, we won't pull back, we won't give up. We say we're going to do everything he calls us to do for his glory and, and the reputation of his church family. So I want you to hear the words of Jesus as we close when he says in verse 32, I canceled all that debt of yours. Not because you deserved it, not because you're better, because you begged me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? Mercy and forgiveness should characterize the family of God, as well as 
submission to the word of God to do everything he calls us to do, even when it's hard. Every area of life that I look at in the Bible, whether it's what I'm supposed to do in parenting, what I'm supposed to do with my money, what I'm supposed to do, do you not find that there's some places, if you're willing to do everything he says to do, that you think, oh, that's hard. I, I, I would stop short of that. I wouldn't have thought. So we want to have a heart of mercy and forgiveness, but that's not enough. We also want to be submitted to God's word and willing to, all right, God, we'll do everything that you've called us to do. And we won't start using our own wisdom and saying, but oh, let's just not do that. But as we do it, we've got compassion. We never lose sight of, he's forgiven me my entire debt of sin. And I consider myself, lest that also could be me. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not just saving us and then just throwing us together and saying, I'm confident that you'll work all this out. Because you've all got the spirit of God in you. God, thank you for knowing us well enough. To give us more details. What would it look like to be the family of God? There's going to be sin in the family of God. Christians still sin and can get hard and can be deceived. And can even go off the rails at points. Thank you for not leaving us guessing. What should we do? And then oh thank you for your promise. That where two or three are gathered together. Even to work through something hard. Like unrepentant sin, you are with us in the midst of it. We have no hope, O oh God, of being a perfect church. We do have great hope and heart for being the kind of church family that eagerly pursues the unity of the body and the bond of peace. And eagerly pursues purity and helps each other fight sin so that our community and this world would say you know what that message of the gospel that talk of Jesus that is worth considering look at that family how can they have that kind of peace and look at that power how can they say no to sin when I can't God use our church family for your glory to proclaim you not us to lift up Jesus not us to sound forth the hope of the gospel that you might draw lost sinners to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name.